I mean, my times are unlimited but I want to ask you if you got to keep any of the merchandise or any of the, the mugs or the hats or the latte Larry's mugs Mocha Joe's mugs steal, I, I had to steal one Mocha Joe mug off the set because they wouldn't <laughs> give me any I got a Mocha Joe mug I got a latte Larry mug I got a latte Larry hat yeah I saw that but uh, yeah I, uh, when I was leaving I uh, I do have a Mocha Joe apron but that's from my original appearance in season oh, 7 oh wow that's how little they thought they were having me back. They gave me the apron. Yeah. They, 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 they would never see this guy again. Give him the fucking apron. <laughs> <They never. laughs> Literally. They were like, well, when are we going to use the Mocha Joe apron again? We're never going to see him again. And they gave me the apron. And then eight years later, they're like, you got your apron? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. At the top of the show, you heard Severio Guerra, who stars as Mocha Joe on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Season 10 of the HBO show reprises the Mocha Joe character, who teams up with Ted Danson. Ted invests in the Mocha Joe storefront despite Larry David. You can catch more from Severio in the April premiere of The Last OG on TBS, starring Tracy Morgan and Mike Tyson. The Portland Podcast is a BBC-flavored independent talk show. We're based in Portland, Oregon, and hosted and produced by me, Gregory Drucker Day. We'll also chat with director Scott Ballard later on in the show. You can catch his feature film, Death on a Rock, and short format comedy, North and Nowhere, both on Amazon Prime. More now from Severio on Season 10 of Curb. It was a great season, I have to say myself, although I'm prejudiced, but... It's uh, it was a great season, yeah, and I and I really I hadn't known I hadn't seen the uh, you know I hadn't seen the finale b- beforehand, so I was watching it right along with everybody else. So people are loving it. I'm very happy about that. So you have a you know a, a very varied background. I believe you started in Broadway in theater. I did. I started in New York in the theater. Theater's you know one of my loves, but uh, television and movies pay the bills. Well, not anymore, but they they used to. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, a lot of us just still think that uh, Bob is a Mocha Joe. Where uh, we, there's a theory going around that uh, that it's the same character. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I, I saw somebody on 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 Twitter, I think, yesterday or the day before, saying that the scene there was a scene on Curb where Ted stands outside and says, "Hey, remember me from Cheers, Becker." <laughs> And then the guy was like, well, if he says he's on Becker, then do people who go on Mocha Joe's and think that Mocha Joe looks like the guy who played Bob on Becker? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I mean this in a, in a comp, in a, in a, as a compliment, but the Curb fans just like a cult. You know, it's they're true. very, 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 that's what Susie Esmond said. Yeah, they're not yeah. fans, they're, they're cult members. They yeah, know yeah. everything. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they curse at me on the street. And <laughs> Fuck you, Mocha Joe. I mean, they, they can't stand me. Oh, uh, that does happen. Oh, that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. You know, it's one of those weird things, too, where, you know, this is a character that people haven't seen. It, it, it's just a funny show. Like, when I first came on to do it in season seven, I only did one episode. I did Yeah, the I remember that. Yeah. But for some strange reason, everybody thought I was on the whole season. People would say, well, how many episodes did you do that year? And I'd say one. And they go, no, it can't be. And I'm like, well, I would know. I did it. And, and, uh, but it. For some strange reason, the character stuck. I don't know why, but it yeah. did. And, it's because uh, of the coffee. Everybody wants coffee all the time. 
Yeah, you know, and the whole coffee thing and, and the beans. And, 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 and I also think because, you know, Larry had this amazing way of like, you know, he would just tell everybody, you know, when you do the scenes, you know, because all, it's all improvised. So there's no script. And he just said, you know, but he made sure that everybody said my name, Mocha Joe, as many times as they could in a scene, you know. So like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld was like, oh, well, what did you do for Mocha Joe? Well, well Mocha Joe has nothing to show for your for your failed attempt. And thank you, Mocha Joe. You're welcome. Jerry. You know, it, it, it just kept saying it, yeah. saying it, saying it. So it appeared, you know, you would just people just sort of. But the funny thing is, is that. Then, you know, you don't see me. And because Larry takes so much time away from the show, mm -hmm. you know, the last time anybody saw Mocha Joe on Curb Your Enthusiasm was eight years ago in season seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was eight years ago. Even though it's season 10 to seven is only three years, it's eight years since I've been on the show because Larry takes so much time off in between. So when I, you know, right, I got very lucky. Yeah, I got very lucky that he asked the one episode that I did was the most watched Kirby Enthusiasm of season seven. Yeah. Because... Because he reunited the Seinfeld cast. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to him to work me into that storyline in a big way. And and uh, when they called, when he called, you know, he called to do me to do this. I was like, I was like, really? You bring a Mocha Joe back? <laughs> I thought it was a one off, you know, and yeah. I know Larry. But I know, you know, I, 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 right. I, I had never done Curb, but I know Larry a bit because his wife, his ex-wife produced my the first TV pilot that I was ever in. So Larry came down and uh, and helped out on the pilot. What and was then, that? What was that? We did a it was a pilot. It never made it to series, but Seinfeld was just becoming a bit of a hit at the time. And Laurie David was producing a pilot I was doing on Fox, and they called Larry down. And you know, at that point time, as Seinfeld was becoming fame uh, uh, popular, every network was trying to create their own Seinfeld. You know, a writer who sits home, or a guy who stays home, and his funny friends come over. You know, I was doing a pilot. <clears throat> excuse me. That was based on some writer in 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 Brooklyn, and he had the, all these funny friends, and I played this. You know this kind of uh, guy who's always got a scam going and, and, and he's always trying to make money and he's all these weird scams. And what I would say, that was his best friend, the writer's best friend. And uh, Larry came down to help out because the network thought, well, we have, I guess they figured they could get him to do it. And he came down and he was helping out on the pilot. And uh, that pilot didn't go on to television. But what happened was uh, Castle Rock, who produced Seinfeld, produced the pilot. So I got offered a development deal with Castle Rock, really? who produced Seinfeld, to create a show for me. And then the director who directed the pilot, Larry hired him, Andy Ackerman, and he became the, the director of all the Seinfelds. Holy cow. And, and Larry hired the writer who wrote the pilot to be a writer on Seinfeld. So like the three of us got jobs out of it, but the show we were doing didn't go. And then I would see Larry around from time to time, you know, Ted Danson's house when I was on Becker's, you know, something like that. But I mean, I had never done I had never done Curb. And it came about literally traditionally the way it would come about. It wasn't like Larry called me and my agent called me and said, hey, you know, we have an audition for you. You want to go in an audition for Curb Enthusiasm? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. And I went up there. I walked in the room and there was like every guy from Saturday Night Live and every guy from every comedian. And I'm like, oh, I'm not getting this. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it'll be it'll be everybody you know it'll be every you know and i walked in and and well they came out and larry gave me a piece of paper and you know he gives you little pieces of paper and they say what it is on it and it just says you're the coffee guy on the lot and you did me a favor and i didn't tip you that's it well that's, that's not much to go on no wow. no that's, and that's all the piece of paper would say and then you walk in the room and he's got a coffee cart there waiting for you he's got the coffee cart in the room and i went in and him and, and i know like hey Larry, how are you i knew the writers and there's a very odd connection with me with seinfeld with that show because i was supposed to do an episode of seinfeld 
I had really this is way way before Curb. I auditioned for an episode of Seinfeld called The Pool Boy, and I was supposed to be this annoying pool boy at Jerry's gym. That seems to be pool. a running theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Jerry's gym, and uh, yeah, and he was this Hispanic guy, and he was, he was this Hispanic gay guy, and he was really annoying Jerry. And Jerry couldn't shake him. I don't remember what the episode was, but I auditioned for it, and 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 they loved what I did. And Larry, and they were there, and Jerry, and everybody, and I and I left the room. And long story short, they ended up giving it to. They went with this this comedian, this uh, like sort of a young guy. Comedian. I remember. They went with a guy named a comedian and a, a performance art guy. And, yeah, uh, I remember that episode. And he, well, well, this is what happened. He. Then I went away the same day, and I was lucky enough. I got offered a movie a few hours later, so I took the movie, knowing I didn't get the Seinfeld episode. And then, they, while I was shooting the movie in Las Vegas, I got a call from them saying, "Hey, can you do the Seinfeld episode? We we don't like the guy we hired, and we want you to do it." And I said, "I can't." You know, my I told my, my agents were like, "You can't. He got a movie." And they're like, "Oh, so I didn't do it." So it's so funny. All those years later, I got to do Curb while they were shooting Seinfeld on the set of Curb. So I kind of did Seinfeld and Curb at the same time. You know, yeah. Because it was funny, yeah, because that we were shooting Curb, but they were shooting Seinfeld on the lot while I was going at it with Larry. So yeah. on the stage, when Jerry comes over, they're doing Seinfeld. So in a weird kind of way, I ended up getting on the Seinfeld set through Curb, which was odd. And then, like I said, eight, eight years later, they called and said, Larry, we'd like you to do two. The producers called my manager and said, Larry wants to bring you back in season 10. You know, he needs you for two or three episodes. And I said, OK. And then couple of months went by and then I got another call saying, well, he needs you for uh, three or four episodes. And then another month went by and they called and said, he needs you for five or six episodes. And then another month went by and they said, we need you to do them all. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. But they had, you know, nothing had transpired yet, you know? Yeah. And then, and then uh, <clears throat> the producers were like, Larry, you may, I think, you, you know, you got to make sure Severio can do this. You can't keep writing for him. You know, you're writing the whole season around this spite store in Mocha Joe. And the producers were like, Larry kept saying, no, no, don't worry. Severio's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. <laughs> and then they finally called and said, we wanted, you know, can you do it? Luckily, and I, I was available. I mean, I didn't have anything going on at the point. I had nothing coming out. And I, I was just auditioning for stuff. And, but I had nothing, nothing on, my, you know, on, my, on my ticket. And then that was it. And I was shocked, you know, going out there. I didn't even, you know, I didn't know what he had in mind. I saw, the first day I saw Larry on set, he was like, hey, big year for you, buddy. Big year for you. And I'm like, what are you <laughs> I'll say yes. What are you talking about? He goes, oh, yeah, big year. But he hadn't let me read any of the treatments, you know, the bum. He didn't show me. And they only showed me the first treatment on the flight out. Yeah. They, you know, they, he only makes little, uh, you know, treatments. They're, they're not written. So it's just story point. You know, Larry does this. Larry does that. Mocha Joe does this. Larry, go, Larry goes into Mocha Joe. So there's never really, there's no script to read. But I only had read the first one or the first two. So I thought, oh, great. I got, I got you know, I, you know, this would be fun. And then, then it was revealed to me that it was just, then I, when I showed up on the set and he had built Mocha Joe's in a shopping mall outside in Los Angeles, I was like, oh, this is a big deal. And uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, you're the basis of the entire season. I know, it's so funny. Incredible. And, and, then, and then it ends with me moving next door to Larry, which we were laughing, you know, so funny. But uh, I was thrilled and honored because it really is, I've been acting, I've been working, you know, in the business for 32 years. I've done I've done some great, some great stuff, and I work with some great directors and films and television. And, and but, but Curb probably is the most fun I've ever had on a gig in my life. Really? Yeah, I, just a, a great group of people, and no idiots. You know, not to be mean. No, nobody's annoying. And you know, I, Larry sets a really great tone. I believe it has to do with Larry because 
you know, they treat you really well and, and people are wonderful. At least they were to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know, just fun. Well, you get to work with such great actors, Josh Mankiewicz, right. uh, Cheryl Hines, oh, yeah. Megan Ferguson. I got to be on Dateline without murdering anybody. That was a good deal. All oh, right, exactly. I didn't have to kill anybody, and I got interviewed by Josh Mankiewicz. <laughs> yeah. That was, that's another funny thing. Like, in a weird way, I got to be on Seinfeld and Curb at the same time. Now I got to be on Dateline and Curb at the same time. You're also going to be on uh, the next season of The Last OG, episode uh, I one. And Mike Tyson's on this show. On this oh, my God, season. he is. Yeah, I got to meet him. It was so funny. Oh, what was that like? Oh, my goodness. It was great. I'm a huge, I'm, you know, I'm, ironically, I'm a huge boxing fan. So and they called me up and asked me to do this. And, you know, they're, you are. Almost, they're normal, Yeah, I'm a huge boxing fan. It's the only sport I pay attention to. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So I, my manager called me up and was like, you know, look, there's no money and they don't have a lot of money, but they want you to know, are you a boxing fan? Mike Tyson's going to be on set. You know, they were trying to, you know, entice me with anything they possibly could <laughs> do it for no money, you know, for not a lot of money. And, uh, and uh, I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I want to do it. I'll do it, you know. And yeah, director Matt Sohn. Matt Sohn, yeah. And what a wonderful guy, yeah. A really nice guy. We got along really well. And uh, I really liked him a lot. And uh, and uh, I went down and uh, I ended up doing, I, I did the first episode. And then they, they liked what I did. And they called me back and they asked me to be on the season finale. So, I'm, so I'll be on the season finale of that as well. Big year for you. Yeah, yeah. Fun, fun, fun. And then I got this... Uh, Hightown? You're working on yeah, Hightown? Hightown is a drama on stars. It's a really cool drama about uh, the opioid epidemic in uh, Mass- in uh, P-Town, in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I play the lead character's boss. We're, we're marine uh, fishery agents, you know, cops on the water. And, oh, uh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, we stum- she, she stumbles across, I believe, she stumbles across a, a body in the water, and she somehow stumbles onto the opioid epidemic because of it. And uh, so... Uh, my buddy Gary Lennon, who produces uh, Power, the show Power on Stars, he's, uh, he's one of the executive producers on it. And uh, it looks like it's going to be a good show. I got that coming out in the spring. I got the uh, last OG coming out uh, in April 7th. I'm on the season premiere. And then I pop up on the uh, season finale of that. And and then, you know, now everything's, you know, then I had another gig lined up. But, you know, this whole coronavirus thing is... Uh, Closed yeah. everything down. Well, the bonus is you get to spend time with your daughter and, and do TikTok yes. videos. Yes, yes, yes. That's what we're doing. A lot, a lot of and work on your videos. vegetable beds, that kind of thing. I've been right, keeping up with your Instagram. Oh, you will. That's right. That's right. You follow me on Instagram. That's right. <laughs> are, yeah, are you a woodworker? Do you work on wood? Do you chop wood? Uh, no, I'm just. I'm. I'm pretty handy. That's it. I. I. You know, I'm. I'm pretty handy. We. We. We bought a little house up in Hudson Valley, and we live up here now. We moved. We, I was in Los Angeles for 17 years, and then we moved. We moved from New York to Los Angeles, my wife and I. But we, we had a kid when I had my daughter when we were living in Los Angeles, and, and then after 17 years, we wanted to move back to New York. So we moved back to Brooklyn for a few years. But then we recently bought a little house in Hudson Valley, and so we live up here in the country, and we love it, you know. And uh, so I've been, you know, getting back to work and on the house. So we bought this little house that needs a lot of renovation, and I did a lot of it myself. I'm just handy. I mean, it's, I know what I I know what I can do, but I'm pretty handy. I I'm pretty much do most things except for you know I know when something's out of my pay grade, above my pay grade. I'm like, okay, that I can't do, but most <laughs> stuff I can do. Back a reunion on the yeah, on the like uh, little penultimate Becca show. Reunion. Yeah, we did we did six years on Becca, or five years. Yeah, yeah. Five you years. did. You're still on vacation, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I'm still on vacation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, but that was that was a great experience, and you know, working with Ted was a. I've been very lucky. You know, Ted's a Ted's a dream. Yeah, this uh, was back when sitcoms were basically you know the go-to for for comics and uh, actors. Now, it just isn't anymore. The three-camera sitcom sort of went out of style in a big way, and uh, in a big way, in a big big way. And and when I grew up on them, you know, they just went the went out of fashion. And uh, they seem to be making a bit of a comeback here and there, but I don't know. You know, network television is very weird. Cable has changed the face of network television incredibly because, you know, you can't do on a network sitcom what you can do on a Kirby Enthusiast. I mean, you know, they wouldn't let me say boobies on Becker. You know, you couldn't say boobies. You can't say boobies. I'm like, boobies? I can't say boobies? <laughs> wow. Really? That is ah. so dated, my God. Oh, shit. I can't say boobies. I mean, turn on turn on the TV in England. You know, they can say boobies. Why can't we say boobies? So I wanted to ask you, I mean, my times are limited with you. I wanted to ask you if you got to keep any of the merchandise or any of the, the mugs <laughs> or the hats or the Latte Larry's mugs, had, Mocha Joe's I mugs. Steal, I, I had to steal one Mocha Joe mug off the set because they wouldn't <laughs> give me any. I got a Mocha Joe mug. I got a Latte Larry mug. I got a Latte Larry hat. Yeah, so but uh, yeah, I uh, when I was leaving, I uh, I do have a Mocha Joe apron, but that's from my original appearance in season oh, seven. Oh, wow, that's how little they thought they were having me back. They gave me the apron, yeah. they, 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 they would never see this guy again. Give him the fucking apron, <laughs> <They never. laughs> literally. They were like, Well, when are we going to use the Mocha Joe apron again? We're never going to see him again. And they gave me the apron, and then eight years later, they're like, You got your apron. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. My goodness. Wow. So I, I did get a couple of mugs and a hat, uh, but the, the prop person was nice enough to stick a mug in my bag when I wrapped. And uh, they had a lot of them, man. They had everything. Oh, I got a bag of coffee. I got a bag of Mocha Joe coffee beans. Oh, that's a real thing. That's, that's yeah, actually a yeah. real bag of coffee. Yeah, that's a real bag of coffee. I got it. The prop person was amazing. You have to see Mocha Joe's. I mean, they built Mocha Joe's from the ground up. That, that's that's an actual store that they rented in Tarzana, California, mm -hmm. in a strip mall that was empty. And they rented both those stores next to each other. And they built Latte Larry's and Mocha Joe's from the ground up. Like if you pulled up to Mocha Joe's when we were shooting, it looks like you could go in and get a cup of coffee. Yeah. I mean, it looked like you know, it was a real cafe. And the first day I walked in, I was like, holy man. I mean, it was unbelievable. And then, and then I watched them build Latte Larry's because I was, as we were filming, it would keep getting built, you know, as the scenes, because I was shooting scenes when he wasn't open yet, and then he finally opened it. So I got to watch them build Latte Larry's, and then I got to watch them burn it all down. But, and uh, Peggy Miley, Mocha Jane. Yeah, she she was on Becker. Peggy was on Becker. Really? Yeah, she did an episode of Becker. She played one of the patients on Becker. So I knew, I, knew, I had worked with Becky uh, Peggy before on Becker. She played one of the cranky patients in Dr. Becker's office in one of the episodes. But she was great. We had another scene, her and I, that got cut on Curb when Larry, uh, the only thing that got cut out of all Mocha Joe stuff out of the whole season were two small little scenes. There's a scene with Larry and, and, and Ted dancing in front of Mocha Joe's where they're talking about side sitting and Cheryl. And then at the very end of that scene, I pop my head out of the store and, and we get into an argument about the scones and, and Ted dancing says, I make Ted dancing admit that my scones are great. But that little snippet got cut. And then there's one other scene when I go in. I go into Latte Larry's with my mother and threaten him because he he disrespected my mother, <laughs> and I threatened him and he cut that for some reason. But I was, was expecting it. that from your character actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went in originally. I go in with my mother and I tell him, if you ever disrespect my mother again, I'll knock you out. And I I go at him, and Vince Vaughn was there and Susie's there, but but uh, that those two little really like little 
snippets, little scenes. Yeah. Those were the only things he cut out of all my stuff. I mean, that was it. So it ended up being, ironically, because he cut those two little snippets. They were in different episodes, and they were the only scenes I had in those episodes. So it looked like I got cut out of the episode, but I only had those two little, one little scene in each episode. And very memorable scene with John Hamm. That's right. John Hamm. I just forgot about John Hamm. That's right. That's right. The bad John Hamm. Yeah. That was funny. A nice guy, John Hamm. Very nice guy. But uh, had to throw him out, too. That's what you do, Mocha Joe. That's what I do, man. If you don't, if you don't behave, you get bad, man. Well, it was great chatting with you. Love the series, and I love that you're the basis of the entire season. So thanks Aww. so much for a, a for wonderful, a wonderful ten weeks with you. I know. I'm. I'm sorry. It's over, but you know. Yeah. Blame. Blame Larry. I'm looking forward to seeing you on the last OG in April. Yeah, you will. The premiere is uh, April 7th on TBS. Really appreciate you taking the time today, and uh, enjoy your time with your daughter. And this is a special opportunity to uh, to really connect yeah. with a family. All right. Stay close on Instagram, buddy. All right. Cheers. Hit me. <laughs> Scrubble Lord, it's, it's great to connect with you. We just met. And yes. Uh, yes, I've been following you on Instagram. You've been very busy. You've been traveling the world. I appreciate it. Yes, it's been it's been a lot of travel recently. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Did you just get back from Colombia? I did. Yes. We were in Colombia for a f about a week filming on a documentary that I'm making currently. Right. This is a documentary about literacy. Yes. Yes. I'd like to hear a little bit more about this. I know you can't tell us too much because the film isn't out yet. It's not out yet. It's currently being shot. But um, yeah, I worked as a library outreach coordinator at the Bellingham Public Library long ago. You're from Bellingham. I grew up in Bellingham, yes. Right, right. Yes, and um, it was still one of my favorite jobs and came across an article about bookmobiles and I was like, not really what I did, but kind of what I did, just like library outreach. I'm like, that's cool that that's still a thing. Yeah. What's happening in the world of bookmobiles right now? And I started looking into it and there are amazing things that people are doing for library outreach and getting books and access to people in remote or like places where it's extremely difficult to get any sort of, any sort of access to outside information or knowledge. And you've been working on this project for how long? Um, I was in starting to look into it in late summer. I was thinking about winter time, and I struggle. Even though I grew up in the Northwest, I struggle real hard with the Northwest winters. And last year, I kind of got caught between projects, and so I had a lot of time. And time is not good for me personally. I don't like downtime a lot. <laughs> I, I like tell. doing things. <laughs> And so I caught myself in like with a lot of downtime, which wasn't fun. So I'm like, this year, I'm gonna make sure I don't have any downtime. So right. I was like thinking about projects that I could make, and I produced my first feature documentary two years ago, and I really loved. Which was? Um, it's called Mr. Moral Jellyfish Man. It's still in. That's right, in, that's on your IMDb page. Yeah, it's in post production right now. Um, we took a team of five to Japan and shot this documentary and it really brought me back to documentary again I've been so in the narrative world for a long time and part of how I got into film was documentary filmmaking was through journalism and so it really reconnected 
me to the side of like filmmaking that I'd been a little bit distant from. It's like, I want to get back into it and I want to do something that I'm very passionate and that is like part of my history, part of what I love so much. I didn't see very many details on Mr. Immortal Jellyfish Man. It's very mysterious. Um, yeah. Yes. Mr. Other than that, it's in post-production. <laughs> it's in po- post-production. It is. Yes. It's about a man who studies the immortal jellyfish, which is a jellyfish that does not die. That's and fascinating. Yeah. He spent um, a good part of his career as you know a scientist and as an educator studying this jellyfish, and so we had been tracking him. Um, my my colleague and I, Dickie Doll, and I were tracking him for. Dickie like, Doll, no, yes, Dickie Doll, yes, is uh, quite a character himself. He's uh, <laughs> yes, he is. just won an award, I believe, for a microaggression for yes, sound. Yes, for best sound. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think there's a picture I saw of him on Instagram. Uh, he's crouched down in a in a car with a mic, and uh, he looks very uncomfortable. I guess he's, that's just part of the how it goes. For yeah, a, a yeah. Sound I mean, guy. that's part of being a sound person, and you know, being the, uncomfortable. You, know, you got to be very malleable. <laughs> it's an important attribute to a sound person, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Dicky Doll is malleable. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, yeah this project, uh, the the Jellyfish Man. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. do you see that? Uh, uh, being released. Um, hopefully this envision. this year we'll we'll get through the rest of post with it. And it was just a fascinating time. We tracked it for a while, and then he, you know, our subject um, Shin Kubota was retiring from you know working as an educator, um, and so we decided it's time we got to catch up with him. So we flew over and hung out with him for a few weeks, and just were able to like fully immerse. And he invited us into his world studying jellyfish and just the crazy character and fun that he has and we're able to capture all that so are they they truly immortal it's it's immortal in the way that like it if it gets hurt or injured it like like goes back to being like a palate and then regrows so if we were like it'd be like us going back to embryo so we'd be different but the same the same dna is is there the same like you know entity is there but kind of grow out to be a different being right so he's studying it in the in the way that like possibly unlocking the secrets of immortality for humankind there's a lot of like scientific research into it for a variety of reasons but he was specifically like angling towards that immortality for humankind and so we were able to dive into that like both scientifically, but also philosophically, of like why? Yeah, <laughs> why would that, that be a good idea? The guy that came up with bulletproof coffee, uh, coffee, uh, Dave Asprey, he's obsessed with uh, you know, you know, the, this immortal sort yeah. of uh, gene or, yeah. or, uh, or or you know, living forever. It sounds like a nightmare to me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'd like to talk about your Amazon films. Now these are mm. streaming on Amazon. Death on a Rock, starring Rachel Perel Foskett. Is that yes, how you pronounce you it? Yes, you got it. Yep. Uh, great actress. How'd you come to cast her for this role? She was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, she is. She's she's a wonderful actress. And yes. like you know, when I moved to very I dynamic moved, actress. Yes, and I moved to Portland eleven years ago, and it was on kind of a whim and a suggestion. I didn't know much about Portland. I didn't know how long I'd be here. And after a year of being here, I got the opportunity to be the cinematographer on How the Fire Fell is my colleague and friend Ted Davies film and I met so many people on that production and I saw 
being behind the camera, you get to see it all. You get to watch it all. And I saw all these amazing actors, and I've been collaborating with all of them since then. It was the film that kept me in Portland, that turned me on to the whole scene in Portland, that opened a lot of doors for me in Portland, and it allowed for a lot of collaboration. So I met Rachel, as well as many other people on that film and, and was able to like then be able to pull her into my own productions and which culminated with, with Death on a Rock after we'd collaborated a few times that became like the apex of our collaboration and I'm very 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 proud of that collaboration she did a fantastic job Erin McCurry is in both films yes 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 I, another actor that I met on How the Fire Fell and been working with her from behind the camera for several years top quality I'm like I need to like I need to make sure my own productions are up to the quality of these people before I invite them in and so when I finally felt like I'd run the course of a few feature films proven myself I'm like now I can approach these actors and be like will you please 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 be in my film please (laughs) and the opportunity to work with them takes you know you you write a script it's like I hope it's okay. I don't know. I read it. Colleagues read it. It seems decent. It's kind of expressing the idea. But you don't know until you get it into the hands of the actors. And for me, I'm a very collaborative like filmmaker. I, the, the, the whole thing is the instant of making. I love being on set, and I love that moment of creation. And so seeing the actor like be able to like take this character that I created and like make it three-dimensional make it live like these are real people living and like and then we're in this arena is my favorite part and the work with people like Aaron who take it to the next level is the most exciting I would like to talk about a couple of scenes in this film Mm -hmm. uh, death on a rock the flower shop scene now in this scene Rachel is flirting with the customer Mm -hmm. who is the actor that portrays the uh, future boyfriend yes a a talented actor and a friend Joe Von Oppen and um, he was fantastic he's he's such a he's like raw energy and like that's you know you just get that raw energy you get that like visceral like character right there he reads it he understands it we talk about it and he brings it all to it and then it's just like makes my job on set as a director is I'm just like mildly sculpting the scene and I get energy from Rachel I get energy from Joe well, it was definitely energy and between I those get two it, actors like, create it and then they create that chemistry yeah, that, that until sad. then it just exists on a bloody page it's all intellectual property it's just like non-existent and then you get to see it become actual like energy and like chemistry between people and like I'm right there, like, being able to, like, navigate this, but then just also just, like, staying back and, like, watching the talent happen. Like, it's amazing. Speaking of which, the three girlfriends in in this film, uh, I got that they were ad-libbing a lot. It's, you know, it's a heavy film. It's called Death on Rock A. (laughs) And B, it's about a woman who, you know, it's a third of my death trilogy making air quotes <laughs> um and it's death trilogy? <laughs> death trilogy the first feature i made was about the death of uh a stranger and how it can affect one and then the second one was about the death of a family member and how that affects the the main character and this one was about the death of the self and so it's kind of like wrapping up my like grappling with my neuroses about death and dying and so it's a lot of heavy stuff and i'm like i want and my experiences with death and dying is that there is actual humor somewhere in there and that's the hard thing to negotiate and so i wanted to like try to negotiate can we talk about these heavy things can we get super deep about stuff 
and then also have some laughs within it and that's a tender line to walk and those scenes that you specified these improv scenes they were improv like we would I would just set up the scenario and let them go and it's three extremely talented actors just at their prime just going for it and the scene with the windmills where the car breaks down is that was fun that was fun scene. I wrote this whole scene where they go on a river a actual river trip and we're halfway out there and my DP Kevin Forrest is behind us in his his forerun, 90s forerunner and we're driving out and then there's a few other people and then I look in the rearview mirror and Kevin's not there I don't know how long he hasn't been there we circle back his car is broken down we can't he's got two other people and all the equipment like we can't make it out there we have one day to get out to eastern oregon to shoot the scene on the john day river like okay well we're just gonna have to shoot it now like the improv became even more improv that like okay the scene is that you were gonna go to the river trip and then your car breaks down and so we just set the scene on that roadside and they just went with it and like the fact that it's not great circumstances it's not what we'd planned for and they just take it and own it and make it a super fun and beautiful scene again it's just like that moment of being in that world and participating in that world and like the energy is so live and so visceral, it's it's so much fun. It added a lot of levity to, to the film, that scene. It does, and I think that's the thing is like, you know, I wanted to be able to ultimately, when I toured with the film, the joy that I received from watching it and the feedback that I got was I saw people crying and people laughing and that's the balance that I wanted to see is like there's joy, there's sadness. We can experience both within whatever that you know direct experience that we're having with death and dying and it's okay and that film represents like that whole experience of death and dying that it is all the parts of what we have as human beings combined into one experience and that's okay it's it's okay to laugh and it's okay to cry yeah speaking of laughs north and nowhere this was a shorts available on amazon prime Mm -hmm. it's a very short short but had lots of laughs and this stars uh brian adrian cook cook yeah he's the drummer from blitz and trapper i've seen blitz and trapper quite a few times in town (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know he was an actor and aaron's in this film can you tell us about this production? Yeah, you know, I it was my first short, it was the first project I made after Death on a Rock. And like, because it, it was such heavy content, I was like, one, I had, you know, ideas for the next feature, but I wanted to do something now, you know? And so we were still like, I was still touring with Death on a Rock and the festival circuit. I'm like, I want to, like, I miss being on set. I want to write something for some funny people in my life. Aaron, I'd met Brian, and he's fantastic and hilarious. I'm like, if I can, like, make these people come together and just play with comedy and just see, okay, I know I can do the sad thing. I've done the sad thing a few times, but can I really push the comedy thing? So I wanted to see if I could, like, sculpt out some comedy from the writing and, like, make something fun. And, and part of it was, like you know just self-funded low budget have fun with it make it short quick and just enjoy the process too i really enjoyed death on a rock it was a lot bigger production than north of nowhere and i kind of just wanted to just like be free and easy to just do our thing on set 
so we minimized the set quite a bit. We shot on my parents' farm in, in Washington for half of it. Like, all the farm scenes are there. So it's just hanging out at the parents' house and, like, filming with the tractor and the cow. It's just fun. We're just all, like, hanging out, super relaxed. Like, film sets, that, you know, it's just, like, very casual with friends' experience. And, and that just lends itself to, like, the relaxed kind of comedy that, that I hope is in there. You've worked a lot with Beth Harrington. Uh, she is a joy. You're working on Beyond the Duplex Planet with her. Yes. Can you tell us anything about this project? Because I don't know much about it. I love Beth. Yes, yes. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing documentary that she's making. I feel hesitant to speak for her yeah. on this, but, like, it's it's such a fun... What like, about your experience on the set working with yeah, Beth? Can you tell yeah. us about that? So I met Beth. Um, she took... Um, I teach a directing intensive at the Northwest Film Center. I'd known... Beth for a, not known her personally but known her work for a long time admired her work and exactly and then she showed up in my class wanting to do this narrative thing I'm like this is amazing like this yeah. is an honor to have you <laughs> like it's amazing and so and we hit it off from the get-go and she brought me some samples of the musicianer yeah <laughs> and and we worked some of the musicianer into that directing class i'm like this is this is incredible script it's really interesting yeah, the musicianer sort of a, a sci-fi retro film that's amazing with petunia who's like an amazing musician and turns out to be an amazing actor and just yeah. an amazing human being he's super cool he's an music. amazing dude yeah and so that collaboration you're working with like some amazing people who are so entrenched in like americana and music and things that i love and then i get to like bring the camera to that that chemistry between all those people it was so much fun uh, and music's i'm sorry i cut you off there uh Music's a very important element of, of your work. I noticed, uh, I was reading the credits on uh, Death on a Rock, uh, Swansea, and Copy. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm very familiar with Copy. Yes. And he's an electronic music artist. And you've done a, a music video with Swansea. Yes, yeah, yeah. I've known Swansea for many years. Uh, personal friends of mine make amazing music. And just like Portland gems of musicians and, and people and just awesome awesome people that are embedded in music but also make portland like why i I like to and am proud to live here is people like swansea and copy he's amazing and uh, i was able to um christina owen is my production designer for death on a rock and and like that duo is like a pretty powerful duo those two are pretty awesome what are you working on right now i've got a couple projects in the works right now um we talked about the literacy documentary, and I'm, I'm actively, I've, I've shot in Oakland and Colombia, and we're going to Sweden in April, and then I'm hoping to uh, film three to four other segments of this documentary around the world during this year. So it's quite a bit that I'm in pre-production just trying to make this all um, work out timing-wise. Um, so we'll hopefully wrap up filming that this year. I have my next feature film called Friday Afternoon in the Universe, and it's a dark comedy. It's, you know, it's kind of like 
Well, it's a, you know, a shift from Death on a Rock, but very visual, a lot funnier, <laughs> leaning way more into the comedy, and has a, ac- I've provided a little bit more access to budget that I haven't had before, so I'm excited to see that coming to fruition. <laughs> That's a good thing. It's a fun thing, and we'll be filming, like, 90% of it in Portland. It's a road trip to San Francisco, but most of it will be shot in Portland, a little bit on the road down the coast of San Francisco. What stage of the production is that at? We're in, like... Development, almost pre-production. It's. I was just in Los Angeles for meetings last week, and and the fruition of those is hopefully, hopefully going to prove itself in the next couple weeks, and we'll get a green light and go into pre-production. Hopefully, that's what I'm I'm hoping for. Uh, My next short film we're wrapping up in post. It's called Western Exit, and it has Aaron McGarry's in it, and and Sarah Robin from a few of my films, and. And a very talented actress, Annika Marks, um, stars the three of them. And it, again, plays with just me exercising some of the comedy within darkness that I like playing with. You know, I was looking at your IMDb page, and you, you got a lot of cinematography credits. Mm-hmm. You've been very, very busy the last couple of years. I mean, you're a professor <laughs> on top of all this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you teach at PCC. I do, yeah. And the Northwest and Film, the Film Center. Center. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're a busy guy. Um, it's... You know, it's it's my passion. I love it. film. I love storytelling so much. I love it from a multiple from multiple angles. I love it through the prism of cinematography. I love it through the prism of writing, through directing. Through the prism of cinematography. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. What is the prism of cinematography? It's what am I? being able to be, you know, concentrate. Directing, you have to concentrate on other things than cinematography clearly but the connection between the two is the script is the emotional value of the script is where the emotional tension is between the 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 script the characters and the audience and i get to carry that i'm the conduit between those two things because what they're looking at is what i provide them so whatever's in the frame is intentionally wrought by the script by the director by the production by everyone working together to make it happen and so i get to participate still within the emotional arc of the scene I get to be in there. Yeah, it's amazing. So you get to be right there with the actors, and I'm right there as a cinematographer, right next to them, right next to energy, the raw energy that's going on. And, like, I get to find the right angle, feel the movement, like, let go and just be in it. And so these times when, like, I'm lighting or there's a camera move is the instinct that, again, for me, it's all on set. Like, I plan the hell out of everything for sure have a very direct plan about things but then it's just being there and being on set and relying on the instinct and letting go and just absorbing what is the chemistry what's supposed to happen as an audience what do I want to see what do I need to see and I get to interact with that and it guides my lighting it guides my camera movement all of it is just like this instinctual thing that's brought by you know the director creating the scene is brought by the actors creating the chemistry and I get to just like dive into this pool that they've created it's up to me to respond to it and provide that to the audience if I'm successful yeah sister brother and this is a production you're recently working on I'm excited to hear more about this yeah it's exciting we just shot the first half of it and then we're shooting the second half in April Um, we shot all the interiors and of course being in Portland shooting the exteriors and like February it didn't seem like such a great idea so we're shooting the exteriors in April 
hopefully it's better. Um, but we shot all the interiors, and it was so much fun because I got to I got to film two of my favorite actors I've worked with in the past, and that's Aaron McGarry and Joe Hagee. Joe Hagee was living in Portland. He, he's not a Portlander now, but I've worked with him on several things. And to see those two, which I think are the epitome of powerhouse actors in Portland that I've wanted to see come together. And even though I'm not the one directing it, I'm the one behind the camera. I'm right next to them. I get to see that visceral energy that they had together. And it was so much fun to see those two play. A lot of filmmaking, again, I keep going back to just being like on set in that moment. What's that? Do you feel like a voyeur? It's it's weird because I don't. I feel like I'm in it. It's like a threesome of wow, <laughs> I'm a wow, part of it. So I'm participating cool. yeah. and I don't feel distant. And when I do feel distant and I do feel like a voyeur, something's wrong. Stop. Really? Lighting's wrong, camera angles wrong. Huh. Something's not right. It only works if I feel like I'm in the middle of the really? scene. And then I know if I represent the audience, I like to think of my camera as I'm taking the entire audience. I'm like, hey, here, look at this. And now let's look at this That's all very together. very John Hughes of you. Very intimate. <laughs> this sounds yeah. very intimate, the sets mm-hmm. that you work on. It is. And I like to just make sure that I know what the emotional resonance is so that I can represent it as honestly as I can, as authentically as I can. And hopefully the audience will. I got to tell you, I first became aware of your work with the Drunk Series with Greg James. <laughs> it went viral uh, quite a few years back, but uh, so memorable and such a fun series. Yeah. One of the best productions ever to come out of Portland, I feel. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, you're thrown into some situations where you just kind of have to like work your way out of. Like I've, I picture it as like I parachute, you tell me to parachute in the <laughs> middle of a firefight and I got to fight my way out. I don't know what I'm falling into. And like you find yourself in the back of an ambulance uh, with the camera and like six other people, two actors and like production team and in an actual ambulance is like the tightest, like narrowest situation like trying to like get this basically improv comedy that's happening yeah. around you yeah. and represent it in the game that, show honestly, there was a star uh, star drunk uh greg james was at comic-con yeah, in character it's, incredible it's incredible so being able to participate with that again is just like where i love to live is like hey get in the middle of it like die you can't get out of this you're actually in the middle of it you're existing in it you're participating in it you know, I liked the game show even better than Star Drunk. The game show was actually my favorite. Now, Greg told me that he actually does act like that when he gets drunk. He wasn't overacting, but he got a lot of shit about that. Yeah. <laughs> you work on a lot of music videos, and you worked with Laura Gibson. Can you tell us uh, how you connected with Laura? Yeah, it was really fun working with, with Laura Gibson. I admire her music so much, and I use music as such an inspiration for my writing. And so, like, to then cross over in a meta way of, like, I use this as inspiration for my writing, and now I'm, like, shooting a music video for what you write is amazing. But it's also, like represents that video that we did represents why I love working and living in Portland is I am a fiend for location like if you look at my films the thing that I concentrate on a lot is like making characters exist in a location and that shifts constantly in my films I love using as many locations as possible which is a stress on budget and the team and everyone but 
I love it so much. And so I love seeing people in transitory states. I love people seeing people like having to deal with their outside situations, which means changing it a lot. And one of the great things about living in Portland and it's a representative Laura's video is like, let's just take a road trip around Oregon and like have you walk through all the crazy awesome environments that we have and so we like drove for eight hours out to the Alvar Desert and back on different routes and just had her walk through several different environments and like you can get so many different feelings from each of the environments and they emotionally when you match it with music it can represent and develop that emotional resonance so much and Oregon has an insane amount of that and so you know being able to live and work in Portland means I have access to like a pretty comprehensive range of like locations to like develop and enhance whatever emotional state I want to put the character into if it's a music video if it's a narrative if it's a documentary I have access to those very quickly and very easily it's interesting too as a viewer to to see those different environments yeah, I mean, I like to, I like to be excited when I when I look at something visually, mm-hmm. and I like to be stimulated intellectually and visually, and yeah, that's um, yeah, what I enjoy about your work. Yeah, there's so much that like you know, I think about like visual exposition that like the visuals can give us so much like access to the character, their current state, their personality, their backstory where they're coming from their emotional state all these things and like the beginning of death on a rock yes exactly and like death on a rock was an exercise of like how can i in a very micro way make this work that i can show where the character's at with these with these very distinct locations and we jump through so many locations in death on a rock but it's all based off of like this location is attached to this emotion and this location means this emotion. And so creating the entire location to mean the emotion that I'm trying to express to the audience to show that when she's feeling this way, we're here and this is what the space, this is what it feels like in that space. Now you've chosen to live in Portland, shoot in Portland. Uh, you know, this is where you do the majority of your work, even though you're a big world traveler, as judging from your Instagram. Uh, you could move to LA, but you decided to, to stay in Portland. Is that because of the creative energy of the city too? I think that, you know, I believe in in this indie spirit of Portland and it is comprehensive through the entire filmmaking like like plan, how you approach filmmaking, how you approach filmmaking as a career or as an artist. You get the choice theoretically in Portland to approach it any way you want to. And if you think about it as like you can be a filmmaking, like a film industry professional. You can be an artist. You can approach it from all these different ways. And if you want the full variety, Portland offers the opportunity to have approach it from whatever angle you want to. And that energy creates a community. And that community I'm excited about. I never thought I would teach. I was never on the like, really? gee, when I grow up, I'm going to do this. My mother's a teacher. I admire like. I'm here because of the teachers that I've had. Absolutely. I admire it endlessly. I never thought I would be one of those people. And since I've moved to Portland, I've been teaching. And what I've found in teaching is that 
like very interactive quality of like seeing community come together and develop and push each other and create art that's valid, that's now, that's comprehensive, that speaks for a, a voice that's not represented all the time, that speaks for voices that that are new that are coming out with innovative stuff like these are this these are the petri dishes that where the exciting things are coming out of right now and so i want to be a part of that i'm i'm too old to be <laughs> the, the brand new voice but what i want to be is anything that i can give back to a community that's creating these new voices that's like creating this new art for art's sake which is at the very basis what film is entertainment we can't look past that it's absolutely tied to it it should be that's what we do we entertain and we're artists but you can choose a perspective of how you approach that industry from and if you choose art if you choose to create like the most authentic voice that you can create and participate in that way portland's a great place to do it i love participating in that and anything that can get back to that community is valuable to me. It makes me feel like I'm living an authentic life. It makes me feel like I'm creating from a place that is the most authentic Scott that you're gonna get. Wow, that's a great way to end the show. Thanks so much, Scott. Really Thank appreciate you, you so taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to meet you. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. And thanks to the Nines Hotel for hosting us. All right. Thank you. Great. Right. Really good stuff. Right Isn't Scott great? I think he smiled for the entire hour we were chatting. Thanks so much to Saverio Guerra and Scott Ballard. You've been listening to the Portland Podcast. Today's show was produced and edited by Gregory Drucker Day. If you'd like to contact me directly, you can reach me at greg at pdxpodcast.com. We'll be back with a brand new show very shortly. See you then. Bye.